Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we're speaking all about playing the hand you're dealt. Before we start, I just want to mention that today's episode might be triggering for anyone who is personally dealing with cancer or has a loved one who is. So please do make sure you seek help if today's episode triggers you. But without further ado, I'm extremely excited to have Lise Berubet with us today. Lise is the co-founder of Move Because You Still Can. She's a mom of two, and she's currently working in a health authority in British Columbia. Lise, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kimberly. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show and reading everything that you have done in your lifetime is absolutely inspiring. And I'm so excited for you to share that with our listeners. I just want to start from the very beginning. Can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and what you studied? Did you go to university? What did you study there? Just kind of your backstory about your life. Sure. Um, So I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta in Canada. Um, and I grew up in a Francophone family um, and went to French school growing up um, and quite a small community. And I was there, lived my whole life in Edmonton until finishing high school. I did my undergrad in sociology at Queen's University in Ontario in Kingston. And so I was there for, well, for three years. I did my third year abroad studying in um, at the University of Leeds in the UK. Did a lot of traveling while I was there and then came and finished my fourth year back at Queen's. Um, and then after, after finishing that undergrad degree, I um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I definitely knew that I wanted to travel more. So I went off with a friend and we traveled to Australia, New Zealand, and kind of throughout Southeast Asia for a year, just on a travel work visa. So we worked in various places throughout that year and traveled around a lot, which was fantastic and wonderful. And when I came back after that year, I uh, was back in Edmonton. I had not really a plan of what I was doing. And I was like listing in my dad's basement and was just not, <laughs> not very serving tables at restaurants. And I was just like, this is horrible. I think I lasted about two months before I was out of there again. Um, and then I moved to Calgary kind of just as an opportunity. My cousins who are close friends were I lived in Calgary and they had space for me. So I moved in with them and um, started working for uh, an English as a second language school. And then uh, in early 2006, I moved to Victoria and I got into um, a master's program in dispute resolution at the University of Victoria. I met my husband um, soon after moving here. So we we moved to Toronto together um, in 2010 before being married. Um, He's in the Navy. So he was posted out to... Toronto, where there is no oceans for navies, but he had a a land posting. So we moved to Toronto. We were there for two years. um, And I worked for kind of different government organizations while I was there. I worked for French government bodies in Ontario. So I worked for Service Ontario, working in business relations and engagement. And then we moved back to Victoria in 2012, got married, bought our house here, had my first son in 2013, um, and then started working for Island Health in 2014, where I'm still working now. um, And then we're still in the same house here uh, in Victoria, where we've been. We've had two kids since then. And my partner is working in the Navy here. I'm still working for Island Health, but now part-time because of um, different cards that have been dealt that I'm here (laughs) to talk about today. (laughs) Well, that's yeah. I mean, what a, what a what a great kind of time in terms of traveling and seeing the world. And I quite like the idea that you came back and you had to regroup and sort of think about what do I want to do next and went and did the ESL for a bit and then went and got that master's in dispute resolution. And you can imagine that part of that came from traveling abroad and sort of learning about other cultures and, and seeing how when you learn about other cultures, actually that can help in terms of dispute resolution. Um, I know that that's something totally. living. Yeah. Did you, living did, you, did you write my thesis for me? Cause that's like exactly what my thesis is about. It was about um, culture, like cultural immersion and uh, how we can learn um, how, how being immersed in different cultures and learning from different cultural ways can help us better understand and deal with conflict in our own lives. 
Yeah. So I, I grew up a Navy brat. So we moved every two years. And I spent some time in Ecuador and Paris and oh, wow. Hawaii, which I know is, is still part of the US, but is actually a very different culture. And so I absolutely agree with that. The more you learn about different cultures, the more you can actually understand them. You can understand where they're coming from. And it actually helps to break down tensions. And I worked for the US government and we had to do a lot around that. So yes, totally. very interested in that. So we have to have another oh, podcast where we talk all about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for today, so after after the birth of your second child, um, you had a pretty intense card that was dealt to you. So can you tell tell our um, listeners all about what happened? I can. Yeah. So my so I I had my son. I went back to work. Um, got pregnant with my daughter about a year after, or not even a year, I guess, after being back at work. Um, they're just two years apart. So when I was um, just waiting for my daughter to arrive. Um, I pulled my son out of daycare. Um, he had just turned two. I was, you know, ready to have my second kid. I think I pulled him out like three days before she was born. And then I was on maternity leave, planning to be on maternity leave for the year, which was wonderful home with my two kids. And when my daughter was just shy of six months old, I think it was the week before she turned six months old. Um, I found out that I had breast cancer, mm. which was completely seemingly out of nowhere. I was not expecting it. It was not something that was at all on my radar. I had, um, I had happened to mention at my family doctors, my, I think my daughter's like four month check-in or her two month check-in, I think, um, which is probably like one of the few times she's been to the doctor in her life. Um, I had mentioned that I had had like some redness and swelling in my breast and we assumed it was a clogged milk duct um, because I was breastfeeding. But it was a bit strange because I had breastfed my son for two years and had had no, never had clogged milk ducts or had no, you know, no mastitis or any infections from that. Um, so I thought it was a bit strange because my daughter was actually a really good nurser and there was no issues. So um, it was a, a little bit strange, but it, it kind of came and went. So I didn't really think much of it. And then over, so this was in 2015. Um, and then over the holiday, over the Christmas holidays that year, um, my breast kind of got like more inflamed and swollen mm. and it was painful to nurse. And so I went back to see the doctor when I came back after the holidays in January and the, she had, my doctor had actually ordered an ultrasound when I had seen her in October. And she had kind of said like, well, it's it like, I don't see anything. I'm not too concerned about it, but why don't we, we can order an ultrasound in case it'll probably take a couple months. Um, you know, if you're not concerned about it, by the time you get the appointment, you don't even have to go, but just let's put it in. I was like, great. Sure. Sounds good. So by January still hadn't had the ultrasound and it was happening again and it was getting worse. So I went back in, um, they did get me in for an ultrasound quite quickly then. And I went in for the ultrasound and they kind of, did the scan, had a look, um, and we're like, everything looks fine. Like your doctor will follow up with you in a couple of weeks, like no, no need for concern. So I was like, okay, great. You know, it's just milk ducks issues. It'll be fine. Um, and then I got a call the next day from the hospital, just saying, actually, we've, the radiologist has looked at it and they want you to come back. Um, we want to have another look. And then I was like, okay. And that was mm -hmm. the first kind of indication of like, okay, something's not right. So I went back in the following week, they did a biopsy right there and then in the ultrasound. Um, and even then the, you know, the radiologist was kind of like, it, you know, it doesn't look too concerning, but I just want to check and make sure. And then I started Googling and I started looking up everything and then I started getting more concerned. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting. I think in retrospect, I, I felt that whole week, I just felt like sick to my stomach. I felt like that, that kind of gut knowing where I was like, I think I knew something wasn't wrong, but my brain was like, no, obviously there's no reason to think I have cancer. Mm. Um, and so yeah, a week later in the doctor's office or two weeks later, I guess in, in the doctor's office, I was brought in with my, my baby and my toddler on my lap and was told that I had a uh, breast cancer and that we had to move quickly. And so the next week was just filled with like surgical consults and more scans and more biopsies. And I wasn't able to have surgery. They found that at that point it was already, um, stage three breast cancer. So it had already spread to all the lymph nodes in my armpit, which is actually how it was diagnosed. They weren't even able to find a lump to biopsy in the breast, even though it was, it, it was inflammatory breast cancer. So it's a type of breast cancer that 
doesn't necessarily have like one solid small tumor. It was kind of really widespread throughout my breast. And so it was diagnosed by biopsying um, lymph nodes in my axilla and my armpit. So by that point, it's already, um, you know, pretty far spread um, that I had to do chemo right away before I was able to do any kind of surgery. So we went right in and started really quickly. I had to wean my daughter (laughs) kind of overnight. Um, We, yeah, so that was a really, that was a really hard end. And I was home by myself with the kids, right? Because I was on that leave and my husband was working full time. So we, you know, thankfully had some family nearby that was able to come and and help out. Um, But things kind of started really quickly. I was actually the day I started chemo, I was supposed to be getting on a plane to fly to Mexico with my two kids to go. My dad has a place there and we were going for our first vacation in his new place in Mexico and said I was starting my first round of chemotherapy. So yeah, that was like, it was a crazy whirlwind year. We spent, I spent six months doing kind of intensive chemotherapy and then I did um, radiation, which is, you know, every day I did 36 rounds, which was a lot. So every day for 36 days in a row, minus weekends. Um, so that was almost two months of radiation. And then I had my surgery in November on November 1st of 2016. So I had a bilateral mastectomy that removed both my breasts and my, all my lymph nodes in my right axilla, my armpit. So they removed 25 lymph nodes. Um, and then I just had a, you know, I was, st- I was still in some kind of what they call a kind of maintenance chemotherapy um, targeted chemotherapy until March of the following year. I think I had like six surgeries throughout that period as well, because I had some infections and I had some breast reconstruction done and I had infections and they had to remove the implants. And then (laughs) anyways, a lot of, a lot of surgeries, a lot of complications, a lot of, you know, unexpected things. Um, but by, by the, you know, spring, summer of 2017, I was kind of done that bulk of the treatment. I was feeling, I was feeling better. Um, so I went back to work in the fall of 2017. So yeah, so she was two, my do- my son was four. I, we got them into full-time daycares. I went back to work. Um, so that was in the fall of 2017. And then I started a new job. I was there for about a year. Everything was going well. I was in, you know, kind of full recovery. My my odds of recurrence were considered to be quite low, um, about a 70, 75% chance that I would not have <laughs> the cancer return. Um, so everything was looking really positive and, and good. And then in um, 2018, the fall of 2018, about a year later, I started a new job within Island Health as well. And then I almost immediately after starting that new job, I started to feel unwell. Um, just started to have a, I didn't actually feel unwell. I just had a cough. I was like, not feel, I was feeling okay, but I had this like persistent cough that just wasn't going away. And it was kind of annoying. And because I was still under the care of my oncologist, I was still on some treatments, um, on hormone therapy treatments. And, uh, so I still saw my oncologist every three months and, and I was, I knew that I had to report anything that was like out of the ordinary, you know, any new symptoms of anything. So I called the cancer center and just reported that I'd had this cough for a couple of weeks that wasn't going away, but otherwise felt fine. And they were like, yeah, sounds fine. Nothing to worry about. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> Carried on. I wasn't worried. I was like, I, I wasn't worried. I just knew I had to report it. Um, and then the cough just kept getting worse and it wasn't going away. And it was a couple of weeks later. So I think it had probably been four weeks with this cough. And then um, I called them again and I was like, it's still there. And, and I think they hadn't even notified my oncologist. They just kind of like, it was the nursing line and they're like, yeah, it doesn't sound like a problem. Um, anyways, she was back from a vacation and she was like, I want to see you now. And, uh, we ordered, so she ordered some blood work and it came back showing an elevation in my tumor markers, which is often a sign that the cancer has returned, um, in this type of of situation. And so we kind of followed those, we did a CT scan and came back kind of inconclusive. There was like a lot of little nodules in my lungs, but they weren't really sure because they were really tiny, but very widespread. So they weren't really sure. And then anyways, by, by the end of that year, by the end of 2018, I was really actually in retrospect, really unwell. I was Mm -hmm. still like, I was still biking to work. I was still running. I was still doing stuff, but I would have these like 
horrible coughing fits afterwards. Mm. Um, and so by, by January of 2019, we were actually able to biopsy a, a lymph node um, kind of uh, in my cervical node. So kind of just below my ear. And that came back positive. And then that was kind of the, the last bit of confirmation that we needed that it had spread and it was metastatic breast cancer, stage four breast cancer at that point. And it was widespread throughout my lungs. It was actually in my pericardium around my heart as well. So I started back into intensive chemotherapy, um, in February of 2019. And I've been on chemotherapy for the past three and a bit years now. Um, and I've had a lot of, you know, different complications and stuff throughout. I had, um, a lot of issues with my, the, because there's cancer in the pericardium, the space around my heart. I've had some issues with that. So I've been in the hospital a lot for pericardial effusions um, or thickening of my pericardium. I've been on a bunch of different lines of chemotherapy because basically how it works is, you know, you stay on, when you're a stage four cancer, you stay on, on chemotherapy until it stops working or until you die. And so when it stops working, you switch to another line and hope that that one works. And then when that one stops working, which they always inevitably do, then you switch to, and you just hope that there's enough that you can kind of keep going on. So Hmm. I've, um, I've had to switch. I've had to switch a few times now I've had, it's also spread to my brain. So I've had in 20, uh, 2020, the cancer spread to my brain and I had, um, to five or six, five different spots in my brain and one of my skull or it ended up not being a spot in my skull, but they thought it was a spot in my skull. So we radiated it anyways. Um, so I had some stereotactic brain radiation in 2020. Um, and then last year in 2021, we found that there were new spots in my brain and a bit more progression in my lungs again. So we switched chemotherapies. I had more radiation last August um, to one of the spots in my brain. The other spot, we found out that it was actually growing back in the same location that we had already radiated the previous year. And this type of radiation is all, it's actually called radio surgery. It's a very intensive, a lot of radiation to one small spot. So, um, you can't do that more than once to the same area because it just causes more damage and the risks or the chances that it'll do anything at that point is pretty low. So, um, we, I was told we couldn't radiate that again. So I switched to chemotherapies again, um, in November of last year. And now, so I've been on that, on this combination of three different chemotherapy meds since November. Um, and my, we were hoping that that would kind of help address this brain tumor, this one last brain tumor that's lingering as well, but it's still been growing. So I'm actually slotted in to go in for a, uh, craniotomy brain surgery next week. (laughs) So in, uh, nine days I'm going in for, I don't know if that's right. 10 days, maybe I'm going in for, um, my first ever brain surgery to try to remove, hopefully remove this tumor and have it not grow back. Um, and then I'll likely have to have a bit of like kind of lighter radiation done to the tumor bed in that area afterwards. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at as far as the, those cards that I've been dealt. (laughs) Oh, please. I mean, that, that is so much and what an incredible journey you've been on. And what, what I'm in awe of is the joy that comes through you. And what I'm in awe of is the fact that you didn't just lie down and take it. You're fighting and you're fighting hard. And the other thing is the fact that you didn't lie down and just take it. You actually decided to do something incredible and you started doing what you started. You started just tell us a little bit about um, the move because you still can tell us about how that got started, what that is um, and tell, tell our listeners about that. Cause again, just so incredible. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I guess, I guess, first of all, I think it, yeah, I I mean, I, you know, it's obviously a big blow in getting these kinds of cards (laughs) dealt to you or this hand dealt to you is it's a lot to deal with. It's it's a lot to kind of process and figure out how to kind of move through that. Um, and the, you know, the, the fighting, uh, references, it's a hard one. And I know within the cancer community, it's a really touchy one as well that people don't like those metaphors. and, And I agree with it. I feel the same way. I don't feel like, you know, I'm not fighting a I'm not fighting against something in my body. It's, Mm. you know, it's, we're responding to it and we're, you know, working with it, but, um, 
That's help. That's people. helpful to know. Very helpful. Yeah, to know. So thank you. And yeah. It, you know, it's it's of course when you're not it's in that vernaculars world, that everybody uses. And exactly. We need to like, eradicate yeah, it. Fighting Get rid that of it. Battle, and they yeah. fought that battle so hard. But the thing is, yeah. with cancer, and especially stage four cancer, like you don't people you die of it, right? So mm. it, you don't. It, it's kind of got that that innuendo that if you when you die of it then it's because you didn't fight it hard enough or you know and it's it's an interesting one because it doesn't we don't apply that to heart disease we don't apply that to diabetes it's like they didn't fight the diabetes hard enough fighting fighting the diabetes the diabetes it's just interesting that's a complete offside yeah Um, no I love it thank you (laughs) educate our listeners educate me that's what we're here for but yeah so the the move because you can um so in 2020 uh, when I was so in February of 2020 is when I first find out found out that I had um, that the cancer had spread to my brain, and so in early 2020, actually, my I had I had like kind of played around a little bit with the idea of maybe um, running a marathon. <laughs> well, I was as, I as was, you do as, as you do I as was you do, like, cancer. <laughs> I had always I not always, but in my like kind of more adult life, I've always like ran you know, leisurely just for a bit of exercise and for fun. And, and I'd started running more when I, I guess when I, when I was first diagnosed with cancer through my pregnancies too. So a bit before I was like running more as kind of a, an outlet, uh, you know, meditation to release some energy, get energy. Um, I live in Victoria, BC. It's like the most beautiful place in the world (laughs) from the ocean. So I just run along the ocean and it's so wonderful. And, you know, every time I'm out there, I'm like, Oh, I'm so lucky to live here. It's so amazing. So it's that's that's a perk. I'm not trying to do it in some like snowy cold <laughs> place. It's fact, it's fact. Um, but yeah, I've always I so I've I've really enjoyed running and and I found through my diagnosis and throughout my whole experience with cancer, it's been it's been a really positive thing for me, just a way to kind of process um everything that's going on kind of in a way of like a moving meditation, but also to just makes me feel, it makes me feel like I'm still alive and I'm still strong and I'm still able to do all these things. Um, and so I've actually been running a lot more since being diagnosed with cancer um, than I ever had before in my life. And, and I had done one or I had done a few half marathons before. Um, and actually in, in 20, 18, I had done, I did two half marathons in October and the first one I did it and I felt great. And the second one was just after I had started feeling a little bit of those initial symptoms of it spreading to my lungs and my heart. And I, and I, and that was actually that, that half marathon was one of my very first indications that I was like, at the end of that run, I was like, I don't, my lungs don't feel good. It doesn't feel the same as it did three weeks ago or a month ago. And that was actually one of my first real indications Um, so, so anyway, so I was running and then I, I was really excited, um, in 2019. So it was exactly a year after I had ran that first, that half marathon where I first felt the, the indications of something not going well. And one year later, I was able to run that exact same half marathon in the same location. And it just felt so positive. It was like not very long after I had been hospitalized for my heart stuff. And I, you know, and I had had a liter of fluid drained from the space around my heart and it just felt so like, it was such a a pick me up for me to be able to do that. Um, so fast forward a couple months, I found out that I had, um, tumors that had spread to my brain that I had tumors in my brain. And my reaction was like, obviously devastation at first and like, oh my gosh. And then I pretty quickly (laughs) pieces in between here for sure. But then I was like, I want to run a marathon because I, I don't want to let this, I don't want to let these brain tumors be, you know, what's controlling me and what's the end of it. Or I don't want to feel like I still feel okay. Mm -hmm. And that's, I wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling any horrible symptoms from my brain tumors. So I think it was kind of a way to like prove to myself that I could do this and that I wanted to do it and give me a challenge and something positive to work towards. Um, so I convinced my friend, um, Grace to who's kind of one of my running buddies and she's ran marathons before. So I convinced her to sign up for a marathon with me. So we signed up for a marathon in October of 2020. Um, and so this was in like early February 
we thought that was lots of time to train and that would be great. But then of course, um, COVID <laughs> struck Something small. Something small in March, happened. everything yeah. went crazy. And yeah. so we were like starting to train and doing our, you know, six month training schedule. Um, but then with the, with these brain tumors and not knowing what that meant. And I was having to, I was going to be having some, um, brain radiation and, you know, maybe switching chemotherapy treatments. I was kind of in this weird interim where we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, and I was, I was just kind of like, I need to do this now. Cause I don't know that I'll be able to run it in October. I don't know that I'll, you know, be in a space where I can run a marathon and I know that I can do it now. So we basically within, I think we called it on like a Sunday night. I was like, okay, let's do it. We're going to do it on Friday. Um, and this, so this was, uh, this was in April now. And so it was kind of like a month and a half into COVID or into the start of COVID and everyone, everyone had been in lockdown and it was all like crazy times. Um, and so I think it was on Sunday night. I was like, Kate, we're going to run a marathon. We're going to do it on Friday. And I was like, and I want to raise money <laughs> for this incredible organization called the Kalanish Society, which has been a huge support to me kind of throughout my entire cancer journey, but mostly through my stage four diagnosis, um, because I actually just came to know Kalanish um, in the summer of 2018. So when I was um, back to work and healthy, and, you know, coincidentally, as the world kind of plays out in those ways, I was able to find Kalanish just before being diagnosed with stage four cancer, which was such a blessing to have them in my life at that point. So um, they run these amazing healing retreats for, for people living and dying from cancer. And I had been on one of those retreats in the summer of 2018 um, and just felt so connected with them. And so I wanted to raise money for that organization. So within the, that five day span of, you know, deciding we were going to run the marathon. Um, we sent out, I, I sent out, you know, a bunch of communications to my friends and family saying, this is what I'm doing. I'd love to raise money for this organization. I connected with Kalanish and just said like, what's the best way to do this? Should we, and they're like, yeah, great. Like just have people send us, <laughs> send us their donations. Just say it's like in, you know, on behalf of these and her, her marathon. Um, and so we ended up raising $65,000 in that week. Basically people were, I think, I think on the morning of the marathon, we had raised close to 30,000. And then we just kept like pushing it throughout as we were running, we were like sending videos and we got like, there was media that had come and had kind of gotten wind of it. And it was really awesome. Actually, it was so like, just so like from the ground up, it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and I think people were just really at that point where they were like, you know, everything was so unknown and weird and people were just looking for something positive and something good to contribute to and something uplifting. Um, so yeah, so we, we ran that marathon and we raised a whole bunch of money um, and it, and our friends like all came together and made all these signs. And there was people from Kalanish who were there like cheering us on. And it was of course like, totally social distancing was at its height. Like nobody was allowed to be in any space together. So we were super careful and everybody was like completely, you know, kind of removed, but we all, it, it kind of helped build that sense of community and bringing people together. And it was just so, um, for me, it was really like a, a positive thing in a really hard time. Cause we were mm. dealing with, you know, our kids being home from school, mm. everything was shut down COVID. We're both trying to work from home. Yeah. I'm dealing with brain radiation, chemo, all this stuff at the same time. Um, so I actually had just finished my brain radiation the week before running the marathon, um, or two weeks before maybe. And, uh, so yeah, just a crazy time, but we raised all this money and it was wonderful. And then, um, and then last summer or last spring, I guess. Um, so a year after that initial marathon, we were like, well, we have to do this again. It was <laughs> you know, so successful and great and wonderful. We'll do it again. Um, so this time, so that second time we connected with Kalanish a bit earlier and we were like, can we like, do you want to join us in this and make it a bit bigger or make it, you know, different this year? So we, that's when we kind of created the move because you can event um for that year for 2021 and we 
invited people from the Kalanish community to, to join in. So to run, not necessarily run their own marathon, but do, um, you know, a half marathon or walking or whatever felt right for, for them to do and to join us in the fundraising efforts. So to reach out to their, you know, groups and to and try to gain some support that way. Um, and Kalanish has actually a, a cycling team that was started years ago. And so they've done some kind of big cycling teams and I've, I had done, uh, my first cycling ride with them in Victoria, we had done a hundred kilometer tour to Victoria bike ride in actually just, just after my first retreat. So in the summer of 2018 and raised some money for that. And then we, my partner and I actually went to the Yukon in, in Alaska in the summer of 2019, I'm getting all mixed up now, 2019 before COVID we went to the Yukon and did this um, international bike relay with the Kalanish cycling team. And I was like in the midst of my intense chemo at that point as well. And so we, so the, the, Cal, the cycling team Kalanish joined us um, last year as well. And we had, you know, so I think we had about 300 people throughout the country and actually throughout like different friends who are in the UK and Europe and different places joined in the efforts and did some fundraising as well. So we ended up last year raising, um, over $260,000, which was incredible. It was like, just completely, you know, we were, I was hoping that we would raise as much or more as the year before. And we just like completely blew out the water, which was amazing. Um, so this year we're doing it again. Surprise, (laughs) surprise. (laughs) So when Um, is the date for this, this year? So this year we're doing it on June 19th. Okay. Um, and it's going to be a little bit different this year because I have this brain tumor um, mm-hmm. that I will be having my very first brain surgery for. I was, I was going to ask the question. I was like, is the intention to go, yeah. are you intending to do it? Or are you kind of, is it on ice? What do you, what have you been told by doctors? Well, I've been, I'm very, I'm, I'm still hopeful. Okay. Good. Um, so we're, we're not going to be doing a marathon this year. I, mm. I think the chemotherapy that I'm on right now just doesn't it's not conducive to me (laughs) being able to train to do it um I you know the different side effects make it so that I actually can't run that much I get blisters on my feet I get you know like just different things like that um so I think we yeah we decided earlier this year that it just it didn't seem quite realistic to do a a marathon again or just didn't feel right Mm. So we decided we're going to do that. My friend Grace and I, who's running with me again, um, we're going to do a half. So we're going to split it into running and biking. So we're going to do a 20 kilometer run followed by a 22 kilometer bike ride. Oh my goodness. So we're still doing the 42 kilometers of a marathon. We're just splitting it up into running and biking. Um, and this year, the Kalanish cycling team is actually going to come over to the island with us as well and do, I think, a 60 kilometer loop around. And so we'll finish our bike ride with them. And that's the plan. Oh, amazing. Um, this, this brain surgery was not planned when this started mm-hmm. <laughs> when we started this uh a month ago this is all very i you know i got this surgery date four days ago five days okay. ago so this is so this um, is very fresh news this is fresh and new i we knew mm. that it was a possibility we knew that you know it might have to happen we didn't really know yet when um so so i when i found out that we would have to that we would want to do it soon that they, the surgeons and the doctors were wanting to do it soon um I, I was given, I asked, specifically asked the question, so am I allowed to run and bike after? Um, and they're pretty strict about, um, so I can't, I can't, I actually can't drive or bike at all for six weeks after because of seizure risks. Yeah. Um, and they've said to not do any kind of strenuous exercise for six weeks following because of increased yeah. cranial pressure. We don't want to increase any other pressure in my brain. So, um, so I was like six weeks. Okay. Six weeks. So six weeks, January, June 19th minus six weeks. I was like, I need to have my surgery before May 7th to get that clear date for my surgeon. So I pushed really hard and I got a surgery date for May 5th, um, which I'm, you know, I, I kind of wish it was a week or two earlier, but I'm very pleased that it was, we were able to get it within that timeframe. Um, I think, you know, I, I need to be realistic and, and, it's not necessarily going to happen that I'll be able to do it in the way that I want to. It might be, I might be doing more of a jog walk 
for the first 20 That's, kilometers. Uh, and that then, is more than most. That is more than yeah, most people. So I who think it just, you know, not dealing I, with cancer. Yeah. And the whole, the whole idea of move because you can, and this year we're calling it move because you still can, can, yeah. Um, trying to, you know, trying to obviously raise funds for this incredible organization, Kalanish, but also getting people to recognize that moving is really a privilege and, and, mm. you know, whatever you're able to do is, whatever feels like you can do it, that's great. And that's enough. So I'm trying to really wrap my head around that too, that whatever I can do on that day will be what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I have committed myself. I'm going to, I am going to do a 20 kilometer run and a 22 kilometer bike next week before my surgery, just to okay. say that just I to do it. it. You just did it. Yeah. Just in case I can't do it again after hopefully yeah. I'll still be able to do it again after, but I will yeah. do it next week as well just so that I'm not, you know, asking people for donations and not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody would care. It's such a good so, cause. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and as one of the, one of the, um, you know, organizing committee for this, this run at Kalanish has said to my, my good friend, Amy had said, she's like, well, my thought on it is if you can't move, we'll move for you. I'm really happy that it's still, that we're still, you know, we had kind of talked, I, I called them immediately as soon as I knew that I was looking at potentially getting surgery before then. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we had the talk of like, well, we could postpone it. We could do it sooner. We could do it later. And I was like, no, let's just keep it let's as is. Let's, yeah. yeah. We decided to just stick with the plan and we'll all just do what we can. Right. Yeah, so exactly. And yeah. for people that want to get involved. So you said you had people all over the world that were doing this and supporting mm-hmm. it. And for, I would just want to, I want to say really quickly for anybody that doesn't know anything about Kalanish, I would highly recommend just going and checking out the website, um, which you can get to um, through your website, the move, because you still can. Um, and, it, and also if you go onto their website, which I'm sure, you know, the URL for, um, there's a fantastic, uh, video, 45 minute video. Um, once you start watching, it's impossible to turn off. I'll tell you that much. Um, and it's called, I'm still here. And it is, it's about the retreats and it's, um, it, it kind of shares, you know, what, what people that go on these retreats are able to experience and, you know, I know, Lise, you said that that was something that really helped you, especially when you were in your stage four, that it was great, you know, when you were back to Absolutely. work, but then actually dealing with the emotions of everything and being able to holistically view things in a different way um, was really helpful to you. And I think it's just such a, it's such a, it looks like such a great company and such a great, um, you know, something that's really good to raise money for. So how can people raise money if they want to get involved? It really is. Yeah. So as you said, um, so the website is, is www.kalanish.org. Um, and, it, and then all of the, you know, there's, there's a link on that page to our, our fundraising page. Um, you can also go to move because you which is a website that we set up last year. It's not totally updated, but it has a bit of the background of the past couple of years and some of the news articles that came out from it. Um, and our fundraising link on there, of course, as well. Um, and a, another thing to know about Kalanish is it's, it's a completely, uh, like grassroots NGO. They don't get any government funding, um, as a kind of purposeful thing as well, to be able to really stick to how they want to run their organization. And they've, mm. they've done it. They've been in, you know, they've been in business for t- over 25 years. Um, and they really are kind of one of a kind. I think they're, well, they're definitely the only one in Canada. Um, there's kind of a similar, type working place um, in California and the US, but they're really a one of a kind and people actually come from all over the world to attend these retreats. Um, And so they get all of their, they run the entire organization off of donations and support. So this is, you know, one of those really wonderful ways that we can help support this type of work that I really think is a a one of a kind and really truly life-saving in a way that they're, you know, they're really focusing on how to make people make the most of the time that they have and process through all the difficult things that come with this type of diagnosis. Um, and for, you know, for their supporters, for their families, for the individuals themselves. So of course I'm a biased member, but I say it's a (laughs) wonderful, wonderful organization to support. Fantastic organization. I called it a company. It's an organization, NGO. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, listen, 
we have to come to our final two questions. Um, and I feel like we could even go back and, and we have so much to talk about, even from dispute resolution on through so many other things. And Ben, thank you for your honesty and for sharing kind of your journey and everything that you've been going through in these in these past however many years now. And it's it's just incredible to see how you played a hand that you were dealt, which is a very difficult hand, and you just made something really beautiful out of it. And you're helping other people and you're paying it forward. And um, to me, that that just really struck me as something that you've done with a, with a pretty crappy hand, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. And you've done something pretty amazing with it. So thank you for sharing your story. But I need to ask you our last two questions. So the podcast is called The Undiscovered You. Mm-hmm. What have you discovered about yourself along this journey? I think one of these, one of the things that I've really learned, um, I wouldn't necessarily say because of having cancer, but I definitely kind of more since having cancer and, you know, throughout this whole experience, um, having a terminal diagnosis really makes you feel like you have a lost control or you don't have a lot of control over what's going on in your life. And I think for me, one of the things that I, that I kind of have really learned is that about myself is that I, I, I do have control over choosing how I want to act in any kind of given situation. So I know that I can't necessarily control how I feel about something or, you know, when I get a bad news about my diagnosis or my prognosis, I can't necessarily control how that lands and how that feels emotionally, but I do have um, agency over how I choose to, to deal with that and how I choose to play that hand. Right. Um, and so for me, that's been a really empowering piece that I've been able to, to recognize. And I know that that's, I think it's, I think it's something that everybody has. Um, but I think it's something that a lot of people have a harder time tapping into and finding and really believing and, you know, grasping onto that. And I think I, I, I don't know if I am lucky in the way that I've been able to come to that or if I've done the work that's been able to get me to that point. Um, but I, yeah, I have found that, you know, how I choose to perceive things and how I choose to reframe things, um, and, and, you know, make them make sense for me is really kind of a superpower. And I'm so grateful that I have that. Um, I think one of the slogans that I had heard last year that really stuck with me was, um, along the lines of like stress doesn't come from, what's going on in your life. Stress doesn't come from the situations around you. It comes from what your thoughts are about going, what's going on around you. And I think that just like really hit for me because, you know, I know so many people who on paper seems like they don't have too much (laughs) stress in their (laughs) lives and there's not that much going on, but they're so stressed. Right. And then you see, you know, there's people whose situations are so, you know, all these factors that you think could be like, wow, how much stress are you dealing with? And that they don't feel super stressed. And I would say that I, you know, from day to day, I don't feel terribly stressed. And I think that's because I'm able to reframe things in a way that, that I can focus on what's actually important. And I can, you know, wrap my mind around things in a way that, that works and makes sense for me. And I have these wonderful outlets like running and being able to, to use these tools that I have in my toolbox to, to calm myself. And I do some yoga and, um, all of these things that I find are just really, really helpful to calm me and grounding myself in my, in my family and enjoying my kids. And, you know, we're just really taking the time to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I I think that's so important. As you say, it's something that everybody can take away from this is, you know, when I coach people and they're dealing with somebody really difficult at work and they're driving them crazy, it's like, you cannot control that person. You're never going to be able to control that person, but you can control your reaction to that person. Yeah. So very similar. And it's, I mean, I think it's, 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 as you say, it's one of those things that you, even if you can't do it right now, try it with the next next thing that comes up, just try it and see if it works for you. Totally. And I'm definitely not like a pro at it. I'll say I react (laughs) and I am like, I don't keep things in. And I, you know, when I feel upset, I feel upset and I don't, you know, I'm not like a pro at controlling my, my reactions all the time, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm able to get there and I'm able to recognize that I do have a choice in how I'm doing this. And I do have a choice in how I choose to be at whatever stage 
I'm at. Yeah. And our bodies, our bodies are made to release those as well. That's why we cry. Mm. That's why we scream. That's why you totally. know, we, do the, we do the thing where you, you know, get your fists in a, a clench. Yeah. You know, your bodies are made to be able to release that. So absolutely that is healthy, but then as you say, reframing it afterwards is really important. Mm-hmm. So final question. Um, what is mm-hmm. the best piece of advice that you've ever received? I can't say that I've really come up with the best piece of advice, but one that's really stuck with me um, just over kind of the past six months has been, so it actually comes from Janie, who's the co-founder of Kalanish Society, Janie Brown, um, who is just the wisest person in the world in my eyes and so <laughs> wonderful and loving. And I had met with her in December. I was in Vancouver and I went to see her Kalanish and we were, I was having a counseling session with her, but she, we, we were talking a bit about, you know, what, all the fears around dying and around cancer and what are the, you know, what are the really scary traumatic parts and, you know, without going into my whole kind of counseling session, but like pieces of it. And, um, and for me, it's always the scariest thing is always about like not being there for the people I love after I'm gone. Right. And, you know, trying to picture my kids and what that will mean for them and how, what that looks like. And, and one of the, I think one of the scariest points in my whole treatment has been when I was in the hospital in 2019 with a pericardial effusion or a pericardial thickening it was after my effusion. I'd been on chemo still like still on the same chemo. And then it kind of flared up again. And I assumed it was another effusion. So I thought they were going to be able to drain it, but I went, I was in the hospital for days and they were like, it's actually, there is some fluid there, but it's not a ton to be causing what, you know, the symptoms that you're having, like, like barely walk. I was so out of breath. And I had six doctors or something in the room and giving me the words, like, there's nothing we can do. And that to me was the scariest piece. And it turns out, I mean, what, what we did was we switched my chemotherapy and my oncologist, you know, we switched my treatment and that helped and that actually addressed it. So I was able to move to a a chemotherapy that, that was more effective for me, which thank goodness. Um, But it was that, to me, that was the scariest piece was hearing like, there's nothing that we can do. And and sorry, this is a lot to come to the best piece of advice. But what Janie had said is in December, she had, I remember her saying something along the lines of, you know, like when it, when it comes to that point, she's like, I don't think you're there. And this was before we really knew it was, you know, I just switched chemos. We didn't know if it was working yet. And I was kind of in this weird place too. And she had said, you know, when, when it, when it comes to that time, it won't be as hard as you think it will be. She's like, I can promise you it will not be as hard and as horrible as you're imagining it, that it will be. And I think that's, that stuck with me so much. Cause I think I recognize that in so many parts of my life and our thoughts about things. And it kind of comes to the whole thing about stress and the, you know, the way we think about things are actually what causes the stress. It's not the, it's not the situation itself is that our, our thoughts are often so much worse than the reality. And, and the best piece of advice, I guess, that I have taken from that is to try, you know, in, in, in lack of better words, try not to worry so much (laughs) because (laughs) it's, it's the worrying is worse than the actual reality. And I know that that's so true. And I know that that's true for me because of the way that I react when I'm waiting for scan results, when I'm waiting for the results of a brain MRI Or if I know, if I get a phone call and they're like, and the message is like, can you call us back? Then I'm like, oh my God, it's, you know, it's the worst case scenario. And I just like, it's so hard. I've been like almost paralyzed on some of those days where I'm waiting for results because I'm just that anticipation of not knowing. Hmm. And when I've gotten the results, even when it's horrible news, even when it's like you have six new brain tumors and this is what it is. I still feel better, like Mm -hmm. having the information. I always feel better having the bad news than what I, than how I felt anticipating what it might be. And it's something around that, like, you know, we always think it's going to be worse than what it is. And sometimes it's worse than we expect, but because we weren't, we didn't know to be worried about it, you know, (laughs) but that, that, that worrying and that concern of what's about to happen is just punishing yourself for it twice because you, you, you know, you don't know what it's going to be like. And in most scenarios, it's not as horrible as you thought it was going to be. Um, 
there's there's a statistic wow. around that in terms of they say that eighty percent of what we worry about never comes to fruition. And mm -hmm. they say, if you're suffering from anxiety, if it's something, if you really are a worrier, you have anxiety, you are pent up with stress, you have all these fears, whatever it is, at the beginning of the day, write down everything that you're worried about. And at the end of the day, go back to the list and see how many of those actually actually came to fruition. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you'll see because 80% of what we worry about doesn't, <laughs> doesn't come to fruition that 80% of those things did not happen. And it's likely yeah. that none of them happened. And yeah. so I think, I think that's absolutely, you know, I mean, your, your, your example is obviously on a much bigger scale, but what, what does worry give us? You know, it, it takes away, it doesn't give us anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think one, one other piece of advice. Um, I don't even know if it's really advice, but I think it just fits in well with a lot of the things that you've brought up Kimberly throughout this talk too, is, um, you know, in these kinds of situations when we're dealing with, with heartbreak and sadness and a lot of, you know, hard things to come by is that you can turn heartbreak into action. Um, which I kind of feel is what we've done a bit with this move because you can campaign is, you know, that, that the sadness and the heartbreak in these hard situations can actually, I don't like to call them a gift. I don't think they're gifts in any way, but I do think they can be a trigger or an impetus to move into action. And I think that's how you make it into a beautiful thing. Mm. So I think, you know, turning heartbreak into action or turning that sadness into beauty, which you've kind of referenced to of making something beautiful out of something really hard. Um, and, you know, like letting, letting these, letting these hard hits and these hard blows, letting them get us and letting them break our hearts open and, and turning that into something good. Mm, I love that. Please. This has been an absolute pleasure. And again, I thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for sharing your story. We wish you the best of luck on your brain surgery coming up. We will Thank be, <laughs> I know I will be praying for you and thinking of you and sending you all the good vibes there are. And I know that our listeners will be as well and looking forward to hearing what happens on June 19th. And also for anybody else that um, wants to join in, um, there's fundraising and then also just sign up and do 5k, 10k, do a half marathon yourself, a full marathon and raise some money. I guarantee you after you watch that video, you will be, you will be all in. And just yeah. so, <laughs> as our for listeners sure. know, Kalanish is spelled C-A-L-L-A-N-I-S-H. So Lise, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Kimberly. This has been really nice. Please do take some time to check out that website and keep Lee's in your thoughts and prayers in the coming weeks. I hope you'll pick up with me next week when I speak to Jen Green about playing the hand that she was dealt when she went from being a corporate lawyer to moving out to Cambodia to start working in human rights and coffee growers. If you're looking for a coach to help you get unstuck or just work through some things, please do check out my website at kljconsulting.co.uk. Also, follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the undiscovered you. Mm -hmm.